morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of OTT, where I discuss everything from fashion, pop culture, to, well, really, whatever I want. Listen, I couldn't even front because I am so excited for today's episode. I recorded it two months ago, and I'm still so shook. I am still in awe because it is with my actual, like, forever favorite of all time, Miss Pat Cleveland, Okay. Scouted by Vogue's Carrie Donovan at 14 as a designer first, Pat Cleveland went on to break barriers for what it meant to be a black model. Her career is unrivaled. Her place in fashion will forever be unparalleled. Her ethereal light and grace made her amuse to Karl Lagerfeld, Antonio Lopez, Salvador Dali, Stephen Burroughs, and so many others. She has one of the most incredible runway walks of all time, period. She has been shot by some of fashion's most legendary photographers, including... Irving Penn, Helmut Newton, and Guy Bourdin. We recorded this in June at the midst of all the craziness going on in the world, and it made my damn life like. I hope it brings you some light on this day. Enjoy, girlies. You have always been my icon, my favorite, and this is such a full circle moment for me because I remember when your book came out, I have never pressed pre-order so quickly. <laughs> it sounds like we're doing like we're doing the dance the pre-order dance oh my god i've never pressed click card in click, ship. Press, pre-order click pre- click pre-order <laughs> that's that's going to be the mantra of most people who are artists now you know because we're so separated and we're like we're so bohemian and we want our our lifestyle to be touch and go you know but <laughs> really weird. (laughs) How have you been though in this quarantine? Well, I'm here. My daughter is here with me and her boyfriend. And luckily enough, he's a a vegan chef. So I've been eating really good. And just the whole fact that I don't mind sewing some masks up, but I have enough material. And you know, you you have to be careful the material you use, you know what I mean? So it has to have those micro dots in it or something. So I just cut up this this car cover <laughs> so because I heard that it's good you know like the materials you have to use and I was an art student also like I went to fashion design school I just I'm happy that I have a sewing machine <laughs> you know, you're staying busy staying creative how are your peacocks are they social distancing oh no 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 they're getting closer to us than ever we even the gardener like right on us it's like one of those 1930s movies where you have the show going on while you eat dinner. <laughs> I'm just picturing this whole image in my head right now. It is so iconic. Oh, I'm having a good time. Peacocks, we're all peacocks, you know. We have the fan in the back of the peacock is all the work. And in the front is the thousand eyes looking out with vision. I get so inspired by them because they teach you how to look forward, you know, even though you have to do all of that work in the back. <laughs> that is so poetic. How long have you had them? Well, they've been living around here for 30 years because I have the house that belonged to my mother. So she used to feed them. She was a painter and she would sit in the garden and talk to them. So they all had their families here and they just kept reproducing. And they're kind of wild, but they live in our garden. And in the winter, they live in the trees. It's so kind of funny. I mean, Martha Stewart has peacocks too, but she built a house for her peacocks. I don't have a house for my peacocks. Oh, gosh. <laughs> they can rough it out. You know, they need the adversity. 
Oh, right. We rough it out all the time. You know, like when we're thinking, one time I was down in Australia and I went down there for the wool uh, anniversary of the 200 years of the Australia. Mm -hmm. And it was a ceremony where Prince Charles and Lady Di, they were there. And uh, we were at the opera house and I was running around and everything. And I had on one of these skirts and the hem fell out of my skirt right in front of Prince Charles. And I was kind mm -hmm. of embarrassed. Can you imagine a little thing like your hem <laughs> falling out of your dress. But I don't think he was really looking at that because the girl behind me had a see-through top on. <laughs> See, the, uni the universe was protecting you that day. Yeah, I know. It said, let them, let them shine in her almost topless top so he doesn't see my him. <laughs> Did you get to meet Princess Diana? Yeah, I was feeling very sorry for her because she was walking behind him with those swollen ankles and those kind of like three-inch high heels. And I thought, oh, God, this is the end of her. And she had on one of those dresses that looks like, you know, the, the sleeves were not really well made, you know, shoulder pads with the kind of hanging off her round shoulders. And she was all dumpy looking. And I thought, oh, God, poor dear. He is staring at the girl behind me with the boobs out. And there she is walking behind him. So when she came over, I said, don't worry, honey, I get what you're going through. <laughs> I mean, she was like so pregnant. And um, there's been a lot of encounters with that group. But back to reality, what did you want to talk about? I mean, everything. You have been, you have had one of the most prolific, iconic careers. You have been a guiding light and muse to almost every important fashion person. We are here to celebrate you and your legacy. That is the point of today. Today is the day that we start our future, you know? Exactly. And we got to keep our minds in the visionary space. You know how we light a candle or something. And I always think all my friends are like little candle lights burning all through the universe. And all this stuff is happening where they close their eyes at night and they wake up in the morning just like everybody if they're lucky. And when they wake up, they're just like zooming like bumblebees trying to make things, make honey for the world. And the honey is the beauty they create. And then you get in there and you're part of the hive and you're all making this honey together. And then you party. <laughs> well, you know what we need? We need a book of Pat Cleveland poetry. Oh, I have one. It's called In the Spirit of Grace. Oh. And I wrote that in 2000, the year 2000. I don't know, something happened. And I, I just think, you know, my friend Antonio Lopez had passed away, the illustrator. And he was so wonderful. And a lot of my friends had passed away from AIDS and stuff. And it was like, even though they were gone and stuff, things like that. I always felt as though they were living in me as through me or somehow when somebody touches your life and it's like magic and all the people, Salvador Dali and all these artists, Andy and everybody. And you don't, you're just running around together, like breathing the air and eating food and laughing and drawing and napkins and stuff and being stupid and silly together. Cause you know, Art is not work, but work is art. Something like it's always going 24 hours a day because you don't know where it's going to come from. It just sort of like comes out of you and somehow it lands somewhere, kind of like a virus. But <laughs> <laughs> we were like a living virus running around, <laughs> creating the world of art. The art is like the egg and we were coming in there like little sperms and people have twins and quintuplets. Well, we were a bazillion people. <laughs> 
helpful. <laughs> and speaking of your group, when reading your book, like it literally is a movie. It could be a docu-series. I was going to ask you, have you ever thought about the Pat Cleveland biopic? Well, that would be fun, but I mean, who's going to do it? Because nobody can touch anybody or go see anybody or do anything, you know, like Guy um, from Datari. And he made that movie La La Land. And they said, oh, well, John Legend and some other people were going to do my movie and stuff. And then this stupid thing broke out, viruses. And then everybody's on whole lockdown because, you know, that whole scene is like dress up, show off, mm. be present, be with other people be very busy and no business like show business. Well, show business has no business now. (laughs) Well, I can't stand it because, you know, when I was just in Italy, when the thing was breaking out, Mm -hmm. I was in the first show where no, there was no audience. Mm -hmm. And it was our show was the Lada Biagioti show. And after that, it was Armani. And she was the first one to say, we're not having an audience. And then the whole thing was so weird. We had a multitude. There was like a hundred models and some from China and everything. And she said, oh, we don't hate you people from China. And it was like, she was like, so she was almost crying because you put out all this effort to put on a show and she had little gifts for everybody on all the chairs and they didn't get their gifts and I didn't get my audience. <laughs> I love my audience because I know their their feet hurt and they're tired and they've been traveling and I know they want to sit down and see a show. So even without an audience, it was being filmed. It was kind of like being on a movie set where it's quiet and there's no people. So I just did my show anyway, but I was sad because afterwards, usually at a fashion show, everybody comes back and you get hugs and you see your friends you haven't seen since the last season, kind of like one of those powwows where all the Indians come together. <laughs> so point is that all this time, I never realized what social creatures we are, you know, in the fashion world and how important fashion is for socializing. It just gives you what? Sorry. Oh, no, I said it really is. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you didn't cut me off because you are it. You are the fashion. Nothing exists except if you make it. And all of these people had that idea that, hey, we want to go out and be together. And and it's very wonderful to consider that you have this body. And as it is, it is a wonderful vehicle. But when you can express yourself through dressing up, then you feel like a flower or something. Especially, I think we're all just like trying to bloom and be fragrant and be beautiful and and entertain each other and be happy. You know, those outward, you know, expressions of showing color, showing character and being something like that. It's very fun. It's a fun thing. Fashion is entertainment, also practical, very practical. When I'm in the garden now, I have my 10-year-old American Eagle sewn up stitched up pants on that had a style. You know, I changed it by stitching it with colored threads and stuff and I'm in the garden with an old t-shirt that's very comfortable. And I think, oh, well, somebody made that and it was good and it's still good. You know, like how they're saying about fashion is that you should keep your clothes longer. It just seems to be old style, like in the wartime in the 40s, how People looked for quality in clothes. They looked for quality. I completely agree. And this idea that everything now is being so mass produced and mass produced, I feel like it's done so much harm to the earth and the quality and also the ability to take the time to create beautiful things has gone because everyone feels this need to rush and rush. And at least one good thing is now people have to stop and really do everything with intention. Mm. 
Intention is everything because what you put behind there, it lives in the garment or it lives in the art. Because I paint and I was doing like some going to this place in Philadelphia. It's a very old school where Wyatt went and everything to do uh, some sort of figure sketching and live models, which I had hadn't had the chance to do since I had been in high school. And the wonderful thing was that I got to do that in between bookings at one point, and I started to paint again. But then I realized I don't have to rush it, don't have to rush. If I want, I could take months and months to do a painting and just make it better. Don't, everything is so fast. Fashion is the fastest thing. Fast, so fast. It's so fast that just it's like you okay, want to comment or something going through. When you have that first step into your career, it goes so fast and there's so many people involved and just like, oh gosh, you just want to touch the earth sometimes and and see what's real and have to create your own lifestyle. So all the time during my whole career, I think I I had not had a chance to have my feet on the ground. They call it earthing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I had the chance to be like the comet flying through the air and living in the airplanes, having this jet set life, which is not really jet set because I was working, a working you know, person in the arts of fashion. And you have to be very athletic and you have to be very strong and you have to be very focused and you have to, like you say, you have to have the integrity to go through the thing that you need to do health-wise, mentally, you know, spiritually. All those <clears throat> things are developed when you start out young in, in this world of fashion, they call it. It's like a little bubble. You know, some people cannot breathe in there. They cannot breathe in there because you have to develop all those areas of yourself. If you want to survive, you have to have a little garden in your heart and you have to have a lot of light in your mind. And when doors are open for you, then you can fly. And when they're closed, you have to be content with that and move in a different direction doors are closed then you get more uh, move in another direction and you start to look around the other side like cubism then you come back out and you see something that you never saw before because it's a new adventure like with you graduating and not seeing where's the possibility then you have to go around the back of it and look out and see what is trying to come to you and yourself you can use that spark that you have to create your own sort of environment and your own world. And from that, you become like the seed. And then when you start and you're in that dark place and you're trying to get out, then suddenly the sun comes out and you can bloom, but you just want to make sure you keep your eye on where the good place is for yourself. You want, okay, the good place for myself. And that's what you think about. Where's the good place for myself? And that's all you have to think about. And then those things come to you. That is so beautiful. And that's, I really agree with that because I'm very much a, there is a reason and a season for every situation, every person. At the end of the day, time does not exist. This is all shown that when the universe wants something to happen it will happen in their time not yours mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of time oh you're so so young and you really understand this kind of consciousness that we're we are entering into a year ago i was in a hospital but a year and a half ago i went down to mexico and i did this vegan fashion show not to model but i created a, a night 25 garments or something because they asked me to do this they said oh well would you like to create some clothes for the show and I did and, uh, and it put me into such a good mind because it made me realize 
okay, what is it that I'm using? What am I trying to say? These are all the, the inspirations, the veganism, the don't kill the this, that, and the other, don't poison those things. So then I created these clothes that were not using things that would hurt animals or the environment. And it, it, made, it made me really happy because in my career, I've worked for furriers. I've worn ivory. I've eaten steak au poivre. In my life, I've traveled all over and, and had quite adventures in different countries and parts of the world. Then, you know, like you, you're so conscious at this point in your life and so that your vision is kind of like what leads the world in that direction. So I sort of jumped into what was there already. And then I recognized something that I had to follow, which was kind of a spiritual life that mm -hmm. I, I'm a swami or anything, but I've always done <laughs> yoga all my career. And people used to laugh at me like in the 60s and 70s, what are you doing? And I was vegetarian and fasting and doing all these things, not for the look not to look a certain way, but because of the consciousness about it all. And that kind of helped me to kind of guide myself towards happiness, you know, being with people, you know, who make you happy, not letting people get to you. And with all these terrible things, like in America, just arrested this CNN reporter. Did you see this on the news? It's too, it's too much. I saw it, but it's just very disheartening. It's, I mean, that's, that's one more way to put it. Yeah, that's the, right, that's the right expression, disheartening. And it just, oh, whoa. And we have to deal with that when we are creative people, when we are put here to create beauty and love and be happy and enjoy this, all this creation that God made. And we're not trying to destroy each other. We're trying to just make the world a beautiful, more fun place to live in. People say, oh, fashion is frivolous. Yeah, right. Well, huh, um, I don't think it's frivolous at all. I think it just gives people hope and gets you out of the house, <laughs> which we can't do now so much. I completely agree with that. You know, with you and your circle of friends, fashion is a bubble, but the only reason why we create a bubble is because the world that we are seeing is not one that we want to be part of. So we do things for ourselves and in it we create you know, incredible art, incredible this, and we create a community. But, you know, it's it's crazy. People don't see that. Um, they don't see that. You mean like some people are, yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, like it's, it's very easy for someone who doesn't, who maybe doesn't understand what you're doing as a model, but, you know, you are helping to create someone's vision. You are creating, do you know what I mean? And fashion mm -hmm. is, you know, is a reflection of the world. So, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. It is not, it is not frivolous. Well, can I tell you how I, I, what I think? I'm just a flagpole for the flag that the designer is flying. You know, I feel really proud, kind of like a cheerleader, like, yeah, you did it. Let's get out and show it. That, that's my attitude about what I do, because that I just know that the designer is gorgeous, but they can't wear every dress by themselves. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that, that, that'd be a lot of work. I've done one-man shows, and I know <laughs> that it's okay to do it, but you want somebody to play with. <laughs> Yeah, I completely agree. I wanted to ask you, in terms of where we are in the world right now, I really wanted to ask you about the Ebony Fashion Fair. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's like, you know, the time when that started, I just uh, Instagrammed out a painting that my mom did. And, you know, growing up, I'm from 1950 and in the mm -hmm. 60s and all of her life, 
you know, there's been this racism and this horrible situation in America where, you know, um, black Americans or African Americans have always been lynched or killed or da, da, da. And um, during the time that I was going on the Ebony Fashion Fair, it was just like during the civil rights. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I was in a bus with eight other girls who were all African American and one guy and uh, one jazz musician, a band leader. And we traveled around America on this Greyhound bus to every state in America to do a fashion show for black society, the doctors and the lawyers and the judges and, you know, the, uh, the creme de la creme of black society because fashion and Ebony magazine was uh, very something that Eunice Johnson had created because she was a wealthy woman and she would travel to Paris and find young designers like Yves Saint Laurent and Cardin and, and Givenchy and Dior and she'd buy the collection and bring it back to America and put on a show so that the African-American ladies of society could see the clothes in a fashion show just as they do in Paris. So she would buy these collections of clothes and bring them back. And we girls, me being 15 years old when I was on the road, <laughs> mother went along as a chaperone. We wear these clothes and at the end of the shows, the ladies would bid on the clothes and buy them and create college funds for young people who had no money. So it was very important, these shows, because it was a society thing for black society, the Ebony Fashion Fair. And it was hot. I mean, there was jazz and there was, there was like talking. I mean, the, that cool kind of jazz talk when you come out in the ray, on the runway, like, isn't she hot, guys? You know, because the, the women would bring their husbands and the ladies would dress up in their Sunday clothes. Like they'd have like on a fox shawl and a little hat with a veil and long gloves, like very almost 50s, even though we were in the 60s, you know. And then we come out with our Paco Rabans and our Yves Saint Laurent and, you know, looking very 60s and, and move to the music of the time. So it was very invigorating for the society to see that. And, and there was a kind of divide in America at the time. There was a black society and white society, you know, yin yang, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, I'm, I'm half Swedish, by the way, and I'm black and African-American and Irish and Scottish and English and Greek and Jewish and Spanish and everything. <laughs> so I kind of stand in the middle of all the things like maybe many people do. And so I think um, I was very lucky to do the fashion fair. And, you know, Mrs. Johnson was very fond of me and I had a great relationship with her and that seemed to go on for, the, for all her life, the whole time. Wow. Ebony closed the magazine and we were so close and oh well that was a time that was very much needed like a capsule a magic pill a magic fashion pill for black society because you know it was the vogue and and the life magazine combined <laughs> if you were involved in the um ebony fashion fair or there was jet magazine and that was like the weekly star magazine and if you were involved in any of that well oh my god 
you were a star. <laughs> and so, you know, there was like Quincy Jones and Red Fox and, and uh, uh, Bill Cosby and all of these, you know, stars at the time and uh, Muhammad Ali, of course. <laughs> I mean, that was an incredible story. Yes, dear. So, you know, all of these people, Miles Davis and Billy Eckstein, all of these people were there and, you know, pounding away at what they believed was their path or their magic carpet or their red carpet or whatever. <clears throat> you know, when you start getting on that, you jump on that carpet and it just takes you for a ride. Mm. And it takes you to good places, but you, you have to work hard, you know. And I was only like 15 when I was on that tour and I had my mother with me and it was really hard work because we lived in the bus and it was very dangerous going through the South with yeah. possible black girls and, a, and a millions of dollars worth of clothes in a bus. But we survived regardless of the racism and all the things we had to deal with. And that was a lesson. They always say, see your own country first. Well, I saw that. <laughs> And I knew I had to leave. So <laughs> I knew I had to leave, even though I was at Vogue America, and they would shoot the covers on me, and then they would not give it to me. And then Avedon would say, I love working with you, but they just won't give you the cover, things like that. So when I met Antonio Lopez, the illustrator. My king, uh, my, one of my favorites of all time. He would have sketched you like crazy. <laughs> you know, he sketched the Queen of England. He, to me, is someone who is just so ahead of their time. Such a legend. How was it that you two first met? Because I know you guys had a beautiful relationship. Oh, all his life, except at the end, I was kind of not there. I wish I could have saved him, but that was not possible. I don't have all that equipment. But anyway, <laughs> I'm just saying that, you know, when you meet somebody and you don't really know who they are and you have a great rapport from the very beginning, and then suddenly it dawns on you at some time that, oh, that's somebody I had always admired. At the time when I met him, I was like 17 mm -hmm. and I was in school, in, art, in an art school, a school that a lot of a lot of people in fashion had gone to high school in art and design. It was a famous high school for art. It was like the only art school in Manhattan for art. <laughs> and so I went there. I had some friends, Donna Jordan and Val and some other people. And they had been going out to see this guy who was like an artist and who would draw them. And I had always loved his work. And they would say, uh, pick something and draw it. So I would pick his work and draw his work, not knowing that I would be in his presence and in his drawings. And I so admired him because he was very young and he was working for the New York Times. And I was in school de learning designing and I was really good. And I had sold some things to this club, the Cheetah, and I had clothes in Henry Bendel's when I was 15 and stuff. And finally, I, uh, oh, that's a whole other story. <laughs> Antonio. I had been discovered in the subway because I had been wearing clothes that I wore and they had me up at Vogue and they wanted to do something with me. And Joel Schumacher, this film director now, he at the time was working at Vogue and this illustrator named Manning Obregon, who was the illustrator of Diana Vreeland. And he was from the Philippines and he was very exotic and 
Well, he was the one I was working with originally for Diana Vreeland in the green room up at Vogue. Now, the green room is where they do all the conniving of what are we going to put in the Vogue, getting all the clothes in and seeing what they're going to draw. Very secretive, like this is our plan. (laughs) And so we were in the green room and um, Manning, the first illustrator who discovered me, was drawing me and drawing me. But then... He had to leave for Europe with Dinah Freeland, who was the head of Vogue at the time, because what they would do at the fashion houses is there were no cameras. It was very private. It was only for ladies and princesses and countesses and things like that. So Manning was the quickest illustrator, and he was Dinah Freeland's illustrator. So Dinah Freeland and Manning went off to Paris to do the couture sketches and select the clothes so while he was out while the cat's away the mice will play (laughs) so they replaced Menning with this young illustrator from the New York Times so I was waiting there in the green room with in my tights waiting to see who was going to sketch me and in walks this very beautiful young guy like ooh you know, you start to drool when you think about it. <laughs> he walked in and I was like, bam, everything in my body woke up like, oh my God. I said, what is this feeling? You know, like the, his aura was so big. It was like, you know, when you're standing on one side of the room and you look across the other side of the room and you see somebody and everything disappears. What were those sessions like? Those must have just been incredible. Oh my God. So he came in and he had like a little entourage. There he was with his black raven hair and he had two other boys with him. And one was kind of tiny with a bow tie and the other one had a motorcycle jacket. Three totally different types. And he came in and he had these really perky collars and he was like three shirts. He had three shirts, one on top of the other with the collar sticking up and his hair was all curly and he was like so cute, a little mustache. Working with him was like, can I stay all night? I don't mind if it's four in the morning. Because <laughs> those sketching sessions were like, oh, God, we got to get this done. And then somebody would come in, like Carrie Donovan, and she'd come in with some spectacular ideas. Oh, no, darling, we have to get this done by tomorrow because we have to be ahead of the other editors. Like the editors were so competitive with each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so one wanted to get the most pages in the magazine so the other would be out searching the streets for the newest look <laughs> that's how I got discovered so there I was the discovery of this one editor and she walks in with like a rack of clothes so Antonio gets with it and at that time when he did sketches of me he did those eight foot tall sketches like you pull the paper down and the whole room was full of eight foot tall sketches that he did of me to present. Because everything at the time was bigger, better Hollywood. Like even portfolios of the model. The model had to carry 18 by 24 or 30 by 32 portfolio around from one studio to the next. The bigger the picture, the better. So he was there and he said, well, you know, I have to do these things for the New York Times. You want to come over to my studio? Because up at Vogue, we were like very, you know, doing our work and everything. And we just met. But then he took an interest in me and he said, come over to my studio tomorrow. Because it was the weekend and we weren't working up in Vogue because we were set up for at least three weeks in that office together. He said, come over to Carnegie Hall. 
which I was used to going to Carnegie Hall because I kind of grew up in there and I graduated from there and everything and story with my mom and everything going there. So I said, yeah, I'll come over. So I went over to Carnegie Hall. I think it was on the eighth floor. And it's like where all the apartments are. And he had this apartment and all the doors were lined up on one side of the wall. And on the other side of the wall were all dance studios. So you go down this long hallway towards this like arched window. And in each one of those doors lived a character. (laughs) There was the Duchess of Carnegie Hall. She lived in one room and Bill Cunningham lived in another. And then there was some other artist living down the hall. So I knock on the door and there's this little hallway full of, you go in, it's very tiny. And then you come into this room that's full of light and all white and like heaven. It was like I entered heaven. And there I saw Antonio. The white light was coming into the room and there were these arched windows from floor that went up and around low arches, like low window arches with the light coming in and high window arches because it was two stories high on the eighth floor. The apartments were like uh, uh, duplexes. And um, I walked in and there was just this empty room with Antonio sitting in one of those metal leather chairs that are so popular. Oh, I don't know the name of them, but they're so popular. And they're very expensive, but he had that one chair And then Kathy Damon, she was sitting there posing. And she was like the model that he used in all of his sketches and his early sketches in the New York Times. And she had curly hair and little pixie eyes. And she was very tiny. And they always used her for these dance skin commercials, like where she was a crying clown or something. Oh, they're very iconic. So he was sketching her. And I was very quiet. And I was sort of lingering in the corner, peeking into the room, trying not to disturb. And he, he finished the sketch and he said, there you are. Come on in here. And then I met Kathy and it was like, oh my God, I just idolized her. I was like, oh my God, because I had drawn her like a bazillion times (laughs) in my illustration class. And it was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm meeting her. And she was really sweet. And so she left and there I was for the first time alone with Antonio. And he said, well, here we go. He said, sit down. And I sat down and he sat there behind us. He picked up his drawing board, you know, those wooden ones you put on your lap. And he put it on his lap and he just had like a pencil. And he looked at me and he, he sort of leaned forward with his hand on his knee. And he said, sit like this, like he was riding a motorcycle or something. And I sat like, I copied his pose, what he showed me. And then he started sketching. And I saw his eye peeking out from behind the sketchboard. And then he started making those sounds like <gasps> with every, every stroke that he made on that piece of paper had a breath that went into it. I was just holding my breath. I just know how important breathing is because you kind of hold your breath in this profession. Like yeah. when you're modeling and somebody's taking a picture, I don't know if you do it or not, but no, when they say smile and then you're standing there like all still, and then you're kind of holding your breath. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, no, I do that, definitely. can't hold your breath, you know. you got to hold your breath a lot when you're modeling. <laughs> now we can exhale. Uh, I think yeah. I must have been brain dead half the time. Uh, <laughs> but I was happy. <laughs> but, you were, but you were living, I mean, you were living quite an iconic, best, the best life. That is so, I love that. And Stephen Burroughs, who you was another. <gasps> if it wasn't him, let me tell you something. If it wasn't for him, I don't think I'd be on the map. (laughs) 
And I think he goes so unnoticed and I think he deserves so much more credit. Well, he's a Virgo and he's shy and he's not mm. abrasive and he's not pushy. And his character is just that. You know, he's sort of like the invisible creator, mm. the one who makes rainbows. <laughs> he's definitely a rainbow. And he's alive and he's he doesn't get enough attention. You know, sometimes he goes down to SCAD and he teaches SCAD, you know, the school in uh, Savannah. And um, I was saying, and you were saying about Stephen Burroughs. Yeah, he is still going unnoticed, even though he does have a star on 7th Avenue. 7th Avenue, they have the Fashion Avenue for all the fashion... Um, houses were in the 70s. I don't know where they are. They're all over the place now. But at that time, you know, there was a street and it's still there. And each designer has a star on that street. And Stephen has one right there on 42nd and 7th. But let's go back. Okay. Because there's nothing like dancing. There's nothing like dancing. And there's nothing like the talent that he had that inspired Yves Saint Laurent. He inspired everybody. He inspired the Versace metal dress. He inspired so many people to do the Let Us Him. He inspired the rap dress that Diane, Diane um, von Fustenberg did. He inspired so many designers, and they all love him. And what happened to him is that he just goes along with life. You know, he's not pushy or businesslike. He's just a creative force that brought to fashion that kind of freedom, that kind of dance freedom, because he made clothes that you could dance in. And he made colors that people would not ever dare put together. In America, maybe you have a Sandra Rhodes or a Paco and Delia or something in London. But over here, we had Stephen Burroughs and Georgia de Sant'Angelo. But we had Stephen Burroughs, who was African-American and was like, the person that everybody loved because he brought the rainbow to fashion. And the way he did that was his little entourage of friends. And so the first time I met Stephen, I was up in Vogue and I was already designing. I had been designing for Henry Bindel's for like a year, but I quit because they kept telling me to make them in these different sizes and it was all handmade. And I said, I don't know how to put a dart in there. <laughs> and it wasn't a time when you, you know, I was just making clothes for myself and selling them off the rack like that, you know. I thought, oh, this fits not, Yeah, I said, this fits me. Is <laughs> and I said, I can't do it and I'm not doing it. And then I, you know, I, I was so young. I was like 15, 16. And I, I just couldn't tell older women to sew things because they would look at me like I was crazy. Yeah. And then I'd have to tell, I was so respectful. I couldn't tell anybody what to do. Like, well, that's not right. I couldn't, I couldn't see myself saying, that's not right. You've got to do it like this. You know, I just didn't have the energy. I said, oh, well, later for it. <laughs> because I had found modeling, actually. And I knew I didn't have to sew all night. So <laughs> that kind of saved me. I didn't have to make clothes to go out in. And somebody who was making them better than me. And that was Stephen. And we had the same ideas and the same kind of feeling for making clothes. And when I met Stephen, I gave up designing. I gave up everything else. I think I thought just coming out of school, I just graduated or something. And I was like, what is it, 18, uh, something like that. I had to go to summer school for gym because I wouldn't wear the <laughs> uniform. <laughs> it was embarrassing. But I... <laughs> For Jim, can you imagine? 
And so <laughs> I did graduate with my class, though, but I had to make up for that outfit. Anyway, you know what that? I don't have muscular arms, and I had that straight cut across the arm. Well, Stephen did the muscle muscle shirt, you know, where it cuts a little bit higher and shows the round part? Yeah. I like that. So anyway, <laughs> I was very, very particular. So when I got up, at, I, got, I got a call from Vogue, and they said, oh, we want you to go over to Henry Bindel's This Designer Needs You. And originally what had happened was they called me thinking I was somebody else because, you know, all black girls look like. <laughs> so they thought it was, they thought they were calling Norma Jean, which is this other really wonderful, uh, very lovely lady who models. But they called me and I was a mistake. So I went up there to Henry Bendel's, the top floor where, where the, the cutting rooms were and where Stephen had his studio. So I went up to the eighth floor, the doors the elevator opened and I walked right into the cutting room where they had those machines and those piles of fabric just like laid out like a pattern. And the guys were like taking this saw and going around. I was so excited. I thought, oh, I can use one of those at home. <laughs> and then I went around the corner through all that little area and out comes this little guy. He looks like Mickey Mouse because he's dressed in these, these very colorful clothes and he's really, really tiny, like very, very tiny and very cute. And he says, oh, oh, hi. Are you here to see Stephen? And I say, yes. It was like going to see the Wizard of Oz. And things were so colorful. There was so much matte jersey all over the place and every day glow color you can imagine that I was walking past on those cutting tables. And finally, he, the guy that came out, his name was Bobby. He guided me to this big metal door and I was standing in front of the door. He says, well, just wait here. And so I waited in front of this metal door and it was like off to the side, like an office near the cutting room. And I was standing there in front of the metal door and I could smell this smoke coming out. And um, then Bobby knocked on the door. He said, knock, knock. Stephen, there's somebody here to see you. And then I could hear some rustling around behind the door like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want them to smell the smoke. <laughs> wait a minute, don't open the door. So he opens the door and the room is like full of smoke and exotic plants and it was like i walked into another world there were orchids hanging all over and and dripping fuchsia and palm trees and all and it was a tiny tiny space like big enough for a desk and maybe a couch <laughs> and i walked in there and it was like oh wow the whole board was covered with inspirational drawings that looked like cartoons little skinny cartoons and he had a desk that was like an architect's desk that was like wood and an ashtray full of sand with ashes and little cigarette butts, but the other kind of butts. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he had on mirrored glasses. And that was the weirdest thing I'd ever seen because nobody had mirrored glasses. And I looked at him and I saw myself in his eyes. <laughs> it was so weird. And he said, what's your name? And he said, and I said, oh, my name is Pat, um, Pat Cleveland. And he said, well, Miss Cleveland, I'm so glad you're here. Take off your clothes. We're going to try something on you. And I went behind this little screen and he kept throwing these clothes over to me over the screen, like in the movies where they change behind the screen. And I was like, oh, my God, look at these colors. And I came out and it was like a wrap dress. And then he grabbed the two sides of the wrap and he started wrapping my my 
torso really, really tight in this wrapped uh, it was Indian fabric, like that one that has all the little dots on it. And it was very sheer. And then he wrapped these shoes around my ankles, like these shoes that were like clogs or wedgies. And they had they were made out of suede. And they were from this company called Goody Two Shoes that made these amazing lightweight shoes that you could dance in. And then he took my hair and he kind of pulled it up and put this thing on it. And it was like, wow, I was just in heaven. And I thought, well, I'll never have to sew again. <laughs> I'm giving it up because everything that he put on me was exactly what I would have made myself and what I was dreaming of. And he became the designer that I was the muse for. And now I had been a muse for actually Tifo earlier, which was a French couture designer. Mm-hmm. And I had worked with... Um, Oh my gosh, I can't think of the names, but I had worked with uh, many people before the house of Madame Gray, but very grown up couture, ancient couture, you know, this was a modern new, and he had all of that funky soul music and Marvin Gaye and all the music that was in the little room just made it even better. And I was like in heaven. And then we went for lunch at the top of Henry Bindel's, all the fashion friends, and they, we were all wearing Stephen Burroughs. And then that same day, he says, "We're going to take a we're going to take a walk um, just out the store." No, this was the next day. So the next day, I was up at Vogue, and Joel Schumacher said to me, "We need we need to take you to the park." Oh no no no! Sorry 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 sorry! No 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 no! <laughs> yes 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 yes! No 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 no! I'm getting kind of mixed up but that was the first day i met steven because so much happened Mm -hmm. because oh let me get this straight oh yes so then the next day i was up at steven's all of his friends were there dressed in steven burrows and he dressed me up in a wrap dress and we headed out towards from 59th street no 57th street and henry bendel's we went to the park where there's Central Park on Fifth Avenue, where there's this little bridge in the park, and you've seen it in movies a thousand times. And we went, Stephen and me and two of his assistants, we went walking and the photographer into the park. And when we got to the park, there were like 20 people dressed in Stephen Burroughs' clothes. And I, I swear to you, it was like walking into the Wizard of Oz. And the colors and the rainbow colors, and we did our first uh, Vogue shooting together. And with Charles Tracy, this amazing photographer. And after that, we became like a little family. And it was limo life and dancing forever. (laughs) On Friday afternoon, after all the fittings, I was still doing Vogue. And I was still, then I became Stephen's fitting model. And after all the fittings during the week, we get the limo and go out to Fire Island. Now, Fire Island is a place where all the designers go on the weekend, like, it's the island where you could do anything you want. And all the boys were there. And we go to tea time and dance and walk on the boardwalks. And at night, everybody would show off and get inspired. And all the houses were redecorated every weekend. So everybody was showing off their talents. And there were no locked doors. And you can go from one house to the other and hang out and party. And Calvin Klein was there and Bill King and Richard Bernstein and all in Tennessee Williams and Barry McKinley and everybody. And we were just like party all weekend and go back to the city and work <laughs> on, on Monday morning. That is how you do it. Living your best life. 
living your life with the people that you love, where it's always just like partying, creating and dancing and making stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, that make people happy. And just wish for everybody to be able to get through this time that we're in. You read the stories or you read the books or you get in touch with what can be. It can happen in a different way. Like right now, everybody's Zooming calls and making calls and keeping stories alive because we're alive, you know, and we just want to keep, we just want to keep going and making it live. Yeah, we're like seeds now. We're going to blossom. Really, we are. We're all going to blossom. And we just have to take these stories that we have and, you know, take our own experience of our own talent. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) shut up. We're everywhere now because look at us. We got this uh, communication system, which we didn't have back then. You'd have to say, I'll meet you in the corner at 6 p.m. (laughs) If you weren't there, you'd lose lose out. Oh, that was so funny. In the 70s, there were all these nightclubs where you could go and dance. Like in the West Village, there was this one club that was so fun because, you know, all the drag queens would go there. So the street, like now it's called, it's the West Village the West Village now and it's all kind of cleaned up and they have a museum, the Whitney Museum there. But that used to be so much fun to go there because everybody was like doing runway in the streets and you don't have that anymore in New York. That was like so fun. (laughs) And sometimes like I'd have like extra clothes and things like, you know, like things bad boyfriends gave me and I'd throw them to I'd say, here, like the drag queens didn't have anything. I'd give them like jewelry and stuff and Sometimes they wait for me to come down the street because I would give them stuff. And I had friends, honey. I had friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so sick. I had a question for you. You know, yeah. this beautiful synergy that you were talking about that you had with Stephen Burroughs, is that kind of the same situation when you met Halston? Oh, absolutely. They were all friends because what happened was I went to this party and it was like in this like cake looking house on Madison Avenue, one of those important parties. And I was I was with Stephen and Somebody, I was with Stephen at the party, but Halston walked in. Halston walked in and he was so handsome, so slim and tall and beautiful and mm-hmm. gentle. And everybody said, oh, you have to work with him. He's nice because Giorgio DeSantangelo and Stephen were sitting next to me. And, and Fernando Sanchez, who was like a lingerie designer, and all of us, the boys and we, me were sitting there and they said, well, you have to work with him too. You know, they were trying to get me some bookings. Good friends, good friends. Yeah, they were sharing, you know, they were sharing because they felt that I could do it, you know. And I said, yeah. And then Halston came and sat down next to me. He says, I want to see you up at 68th Street. Now, 68th Street is where he had his atelier way out of the way on Madison Avenue. Nobody was up there. Mm. And he had been a hat designer at Bonwit Taylor's or something. And he was making these clothes. And um, I went over there to 68th Street and I took the bus and I got off near there and I couldn't find the buzzer of the building because it was like in the back of the building but it was on the side of the building so you had to go in it was like a residential brownstone kind of brickstone house and so I went up to the second the third floor hit the third and fourth floors and I get out of the elevator and I go into this room that's totally decorated with exotic plants. Because at that time, everybody was like doing a jungle in their house. And the walls all had jungle 
pattern a palm tree design on it and everybody was burning Rigo candles mm-hmm. because that was the chic candle that you bought at Henry Vindel's and it was green and it cost like $100 a candle. That was a lot of money candle at that time and everybody had these regal so you walk in and it's first thing is you get the regal candles scent in the palm trees and you just waited for a parrot or cockatoo to land on you when you walked in so i got in there and this guy came up to me um a young sort of like i guess he was an assistant it was like the doors opened right into the place you know like those apartments where you walk into the penthouse and the front door is the elevator Walk right in, and this young guy with a southern accent, he said, "Oh, honey, you're here to see, you're here to see Halston, aren't you?" And I thought he was so cute. And he said, "Come on back." And I said, "Okay." So I went back. This little tiny curtain, white curtain. That was a strange thing because the whole place was decorated, except, you know, backstage. It's not the same as out front, right? Yeah. <laughs> I went past this white curtain. Could have been like, you know, made out of uh, draping the fabric you use when you first cut out, um, you know, a pattern. So I went past this curtain and I got in there. It was a stark white small room with a huge cutting table. And in there was standing like a house model and uh, she was standing on the table. And I came in. He says, well, I'm just going to leave you here. So I didn't, I didn't see Halston. And he suddenly came out from the back and he was smoking a cigarette. And he was dressed in a silk white shirt, open to like the chest heart area. And he had on one of those Navajo belts with the black slacks made out of crepe. Um, And he had very long hair, like down to his shoulders. And he had these big blue twinkly eyes. It was so beautiful. And he had these hand movements that looked like you, if you had a fan in your hand. And when he spoke, he sort of used his hands like, with his cigarette, like he was waving some some magic potion in front of his face. So you kind of got to see him through this like smoke veil, but you know, very, very beautiful. Very, very, very beautiful. Like this honey colored, dark blonde hair and long and big, big turquoise blue eyes and beautiful body. Like he could have been a dancer or something, but he always said he had two left feet, which he did not. <laughs> anyway, so he says, oh, you're here. And he says to me, you don't remember me, but I saw you before you saw me. I said, what? He says, yes, I was in Chicago when you did the Ebony Fashion Fair. Wow. And I saw you. Oh, my God. The coincidences. <laughs> yeah, because he was a hat designer in Chicago at the time. So he came, He and Mrs. Johnson would buy his hats. So he saw me. And that was kind of like, Wow. So we had our first show and all the ladies in society came and there were not so many photographers. There was Bill Cunningham mm-hmm. and maybe Barry Berenson, the daughter, the sister of Marisa Berenson, like two photographers and the rest were like illustrators and things that came to the fashion show up at 68th street. And it was like being in someone's living room. And I remember Angelica Houston, she came to be in the show. She was just like trying to make it and, she was a skinny model too, and and Naomi, uh, the real first Naomi, not Naomi Campbell, but Naomi Sims. Yeah, she was there. And Marina Skiana, Marisa Berenson, wow. um, Angelica, me, and uh, we were the first ones. We were his models. He had about five, five of them. 
What was it like being a host in that? That came along because the music, this it was all about being the Supremes or something. We were all like, <laughs> oh, we just want to be movie stars and we want to be on television. We want to do everything. You know, this this uh, friend that was an illustrator, Joe Eula, was very close to um, Halston. And he had written a, a musical for Broadway. And... You know, it was all about fashion stuff, and it was for the Supremes and uh, uh, something girls. I forgot the name of it. Anyway, he would always say to Halston, oh, they're the Halstonettes, because we were all like, you know, we'd always like to sing and, and dance and sing and be together. And, you know, so he said, okay, we're going to be the Halstonettes, because that would be like him as the band, Halston is the band leader, and we're the backup singers. <laughs> And everywhere we went, we were his wingman in a way. Like instead of like having like bracelets on your arm, you would have girls on your arm. <laughs> like when you went out to Studio 54, it was just all of you guys together. Well, it's more than Studio 54. It's the whole world tour. Yeah. To Paris, to La Palace, to Club Set, to, to everywhere, to houses, to the Gettys, to the penthouse parties, to everything. China, we went everywhere together. We flew when we flew, when they had those planes with the beds in them, the giant jumbo jets, we all had our own bed. We had the whole front, like a living room of the airplane, first class with the spiral staircase going up. And sometimes we'd change, like if there weren't enough beds for the whole crew, we'd change, like Halston would sleep for a couple of hours going to China and then say, okay, it's your turn. You can sleep. <laughs> it was just like one of the... One of those movies where the band goes in a train and they have to sleep in those cabooses. <laughs> those it's like going on tour. That is yeah. so incredible. And sometimes we take the train and we'd all get a train together. And then sometimes we take the car, the limo from New York to Philly. You know, we always had a caravan of limousines. And sometimes we'd be in limousines so much, the bottom of the sole of our shoes would never get dirty. That's how it was. Oh your sole of your shoe never touches the ground. You know you're on the top of the flying with it. <laughs> that is fab. That is, wow. I love that. That, that, that's, that. You know, that is a life to live by. Your soul's never, you know, that, that, that's my new, I mean, now that I'm in quarantine, my soul's never get dirty. <laughs> <laughs> but when I get out of quarantine, my, I don't want my souls to ever get that way. That actually, wait, I'm just that vision, like that. Yeah, it's just our new shoes all the time, new shoes and, you know, oh, God, so beautiful. What and so, so generous. He bought us all diamonds. Wow. Diamond earrings and some girls had necklaces, you know, and um, that's when Elsa Peretti started. He uh, inspired her to design for Tiffany, so he got all of these diamonds and gave them all to us. Carl did that, too. When I went to Paris, he gave us little diamonds. and um, But they were all stolen. You know, things like that come into your life and they go. Mm -hmm. So you can't let everybody stay in your apartment. Because when you come back from Europe, everything's gone. <laughs> I've had so many trunks of clothes stolen. Like, you know, when you travel so much, you have nowhere to leave your stuff. And if you're hanging out at somebody's house and you leave a trunk full of Carl Lagerfeld's there and you come back and gypsies are staying in the house and they take your scaparellis and they're gone when you get back. Oh, my God. Well, that's a horrible feeling to have. Well, it's horrible because you put value on the fact that somebody yeah. that you love gave it to you. Mm -hmm. Like one time I was in Germany doing what becomes a legend most. And I was doing this show with Nat King Coe's daughter and Mary Martin and all of these people. 
And I and this wonderful drag queen gets on stage. And what does he have on? He has on my white jacket. Oh my And when he comes off stage, I said, politely, where did you get that jacket? And he said, Oh, I got it on Second Avenue in a thrift store. I said, There's only two in the world. Liza has one and one is mine. He says, Oh no, don't take my jacket. I said, I would never take that jacket from you. You look so good in it. <laughs> that was his whole life, that jacket, but that jacket was my whole life too. And he did it so well. I thought, I'm not gonna be a bitch. That's one of my people. Let him wear that jacket. He wears it proud. I mean, sometimes things just have to move along down the road. <laughs> oh my God, that is so were you just were you just shocked? Like that is my job. I was so shocked. I was so shocked, but he was so Liza in it. Yeah. So the jacket was fitted on me for Liza. And the reason he made those payette jackets is because those 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 glass beaded jackets is because Liza sweats so much in, on the stage <laughs> that he had to get something shinier than her face. You see? So that's why he did those jackets so shiny for her and all the things shiny. So she would not look so sweaty on stage. It's so like, in comparison, that is, that's, that's so bright. That's a fashion secret. No, I'm sorry. I'm just playing. <laughs> so in comparison. That is a fashion secret right there. Is, but then you have clients that need like wool or cashmere because they're so dried up looking. <laughs> Some people look like khaki. Oh, <laughs> khaki. Please, please. Lies you tell. Lies are yeah. lies. Um, but speaking of Miss Liza, I love her. She's a girlfriend. I love, huh? Oh, sorry. I love Liza. <laughs> yeah, me too. I love Liza Minnelli. You can't do no wrong. I mean, she had a hard time with those bad boyfriends. Mm-hmm. She kept singing through the whole thing. Her mom and oh, Kay Thompson. You know, Kay Thompson yeah. was about Think Pink and all. And she mm-hmm. did Eloise at the Plaza, the book. She taught us girls some stuff, but we already knew it. But she was like teaching us stuff for Versailles. And she was the one who taught Liza how to use her hands on stage. And she also was Judy Garland's coach at some point. So we all got that coaching mm-hmm. for using certain movements on stage. And that's and it's so funny because Liza, Maurice, and I always say, let's take dance classes together with this guy that I used to dance with, like in the 60s when I was hanging out with the Kennedys and stuff at Le, Le Club and all that. And um, he was a choreographer and he was like, boom, shakalaka, boom. And he had all those cool 1960s funky moves and stuff. Well, Liza's really good at funky moves. <laughs> funky dancer. But that's old fashioned, I guess. Not really. I mean, if you look at TikTok, they're all trying to do it. <laughs> Pat, would you ever get on TikTok? I have TikTok. Me and Anna did a TikTok twice. Oh we my did God. flick the switch and we did the other one. Um, we did another. We did two, but they didn't show up. Oh, I love it. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding? I love people doing stuff. <laughs> yeah. Rather than not doing stuff. If you can, if you're alive, have some fun. Right. Um, you, you briefly brought it up. The Battle of Versailles. November 28th, 1973, a moment that changed fashion, brought American sportswear to the forefront. Did you know at that time that it was going to be such an important moment in fashion? No. (laughs) We were just going over there to do a benefit to help an old building from falling apart because we like to go take a trip to Paris, all the designers Mm -hmm. together. It was like an invite to go to a party. That's how we took it. Until they all got serious. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when it came time, like 
pecking order, like who's going to rehearse first and last. Then Halston put his foot down. He got mad at everybody because it took so long. You know, like in America, everything is nine to five and forget it. I'm going home. But in Paris, it's 24 hours to do things. So the French were moving very like within their own rhythm, you know, oh la la, drink some wine, wait till 6 p.m., then we'll rehearse again. And then the American, well, you know, and I have my poetry book out, but there's no more copies at the moment. And the other book, Walking with Miss, you know, I try to do things like that. The whole idea is models don't do stuff. But mm-hmm. at that Versailles 73, they made a big thing out of it and called it the battle. You know, they always have to have opposing sides to make a fight and make it dramatic and make it interesting. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't supposed to be dramatic. It's just that, seriously, people have different working habits, you know, and different metric uh, measurements. You know that, inches and metrics. Yeah. And, and it's just, I don't know, it just sort of get very conflicting when it came to how much time you do things. And other than that, it was a fabulous party. <laughs> other than all that technical stuff, you know, like organizing the rehearsal, you know, having Liza. Oh, it's so funny. Liza and Nuria. So we're in the rehearsal, right? Mm-hmm. And so with Nuria, you know, I had seen him at many parties and we had partied together. So I was running real quick to the bathroom before the rehearsal. And he was like standing there just about to go on stage. And I had my stilettos on. And somehow, I don't know how he got tangled up, but I stepped on his toe before I went out. And he was hopping around like, oh, fuck. I stepped in his toe in my stiletto. And he was like damaged. And then he had to go out and do Romeo and Juliet. And then for years after that, we were doing like these TV shows in Italy and stuff. And every time he saw me, he would like back up and say, please, please don't step on my toe. (laughs) It was like we had this thing going. But other than that, there was Josephine Baker backstage and, you know, um, we were talking, and the girls came over, and I had such naughty girlfriends, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, we were talking, and I kind of have a history with Josephine because my family, my godmother was a Sunday school teacher and stuff like that, and all this stuff, you know, about the history going back in my family. And but we encountered each other many, many times before. So we were, you know, like when she was in New York at Carnegie Hall, she asked me to dance, and I did. And I was going to... Um, go work at the crazy horse with her because I wanted to have that experience. So we were talking and um, then all my girlfriends showed up, the other models, and they like crowded around and got in the picture and somebody, Bill Cunny, came by and took a picture. And my girlfriend, one of my girlfriend models, she, meanwhile, there she was, Josephine, standing there ready to do the rehearsal in her costume. And my girlfriends were like picking all the feathers out of the back of her dress so they could have like some kind of thing from her like ah uh, what are you doing <laughs> he didn't know they were picking the feathers off the back of her <laughs> off the back of her costume actually i still have one of those feathers <laughs> wow isn't that terrible so if you if you're a peacock look behind you once in a while <laughs> <laughs> you never know who's gonna nab a feather yeah right don't let nab your feather <laughs> so that was so much fun, being backstage with Nuriev and, you know, and then Cardan was there and Givenchy and Eve and Steven and Halston and Bill. And, you know, it was just some kind of food salad going on there, full of nuts. Anyway, it was so cute because, you know, you know, my dream was always for all the Americans also. My, one of my dreams was for all my French designers 
friends, you know, like even everybody, because I had been working in Europe extensively before 73. I was already working with Givenchy and Dior and everybody, you know, I was working with everybody. So I was like so happy that my French friends were going to meet my American friends. Mm -hmm. But it didn't go like that. (laughs) They were all like hostile to each other, except for Stephen. Stephen was the only one that didn't have a problem with anybody. (laughs) And they all loved him. And everybody else was like always bickering and, you know, I guess their egos were like really huge. And they didn't. It was like terrible because like, whose side are you on? I'm on everybody's side. <laughs> You're just one for everyone. I just wanted everybody to be happy. And, you know, all of us girls stuck together. It was freezing cold back there because they had no central heating. You know, being from America, you're used to central heating. Mm-hmm. And you back there and there's old building with no heating and no toilet paper and no food. Those rehearsals were long. And so, but the partying after, it was worth suffering, believe me. And when I got to go out on stage, on the Versailles stage, it was so exciting because the audience was bejeweled and it was just divine. I couldn't see very much though, because when the spotlight's on you, all you see is black, a void, right? But I had faith when when Halston said, just be a moth. So I went to the light and I didn't fall off the edge of the stage and I was lucky. But I got to the very tip end of the stage and I could hear the audience go, oh, They thought I was going to fall off the stage, but I tricked them. (laughs) And I flew back the other way. (laughs) That's how when you see a butterfly and you think, oh, no, don't fly into that net. And then they go the other way. I guess they were hoping that I didn't fall off. (laughs) And you didn't. And you won. And I started the voguing, by the way. Not Madonna. It started at Versailles. When Stephen Burroughs said to me, okay, you and the girls, you take the lead, you go out there, and you do the posing at the end of the stage. That was Stephen Burroughs' idea. And then so, all kind of just started to... Filter through to the future. Filter through to Madonna. And yeah. no, did you ever get any royalties? <laughs> you don't need royalties. You just, you don't always need credit for everything. You need yeah. to enjoy the inspiration and let it go. Definitely. Because that's the way to do things. Because if somebody gets inspired, like sometimes I would do bookings and, you know, they'd, they'd use me and then they'd make the other girls do my same poses. That used to irritate me a lot because I'd have to come up with poses and things to make the clothes look exciting. And then they would say, well, do what she's doing. And that would really, really upset me because at that time, because I was trying to stand out. But then later on, I owned a model agency and I taught girls to do those moves like Tara Banks and Naomi and different girls were in my agency. And I gave them walking lessons. And later on, they thanked me when they became like big stars and they would have me come in their television show and talk about it. So it's just like you pass it on, you know, at the right time. Mm-hmm. But when you're young, you want to stand out. You want to do something. You don't want people copying you every time you come up with something, mm-hmm. you know, because you think, oh, this is mine. But we don't really own anything. I'm grateful for your time. This has been... It's okay. I just can't even... First of all, I just have to say this has meant so much to me. Well, stay alive, darling. You know, my heart is so good. filled with gratitude. Yeah, mm-hmm. if, well, I am just so... Thank, I am so grateful. You know, this has been so, this has been such an incredible conversation. And, you know, this has been, for me as a journalist, this has been the one at the top of my bucket list. Well, you don't need a bucket yet. You just need a list, honey. Not just a list, but, you know, you are, you, we are, we right now in this time, we need light and you radiate light and 
that is why I'm doing this. So I'm just very thankful. Thank you for caring and thank you for thinking about me in your light. Oh, because so your light is what's going to pe- pe- make people stay awake and wonder, how can I wake up every day and be happy? And, you know, because you're making the effort, you know, and that is a good direction. We oh. don't need anything else than, other than your inspiration. You keep it going, then people will feel, you know, I have something and they will use it and they will understand that they can do something too, right? Perfect. Oh my God. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'll speak to you soon. Have a good day. Have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you. Nice visit. Ciao. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of OTT. You can find me on Instagram at hey, hey, try, try. Stay safe. Love and light on site. Bye. You are now